My name is Stuart, and it is great to be with you today. So, and we have this um, really interesting, meaty passage to get our teeth into. So I want to start by asking you one very direct question. So here goes. What do you need for a happy, joyful life? What are the things, the people, the events in your life that mean you are satisfied, happy, even joyful? Just have a little think. What makes you happy? Okay? Got it all sussed? Should we leave now? (laughs) Well, Abraham Maslow, um, who is an American psychologist, he was already 32 when the Second World War started. And being a dad, and uh, we've just mentioned that on this day, I don't know why, uh, of two people, he saw the futility of war and the waste of human life that it caused. And that led him and gave him a passion to research and look into the fundamentals of what it means to be a human, about mental health and also about human potential. And this led to, amongst other things, probably the most direct and most famous of his models, uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Um, How many of you have heard about this before or seen it on work and things like that? Brilliant. So theorizing about our needs and splitting those into seven different sort of tiers as depicted by this diagram. And it works from the bottom to the top, starting with the very basic needs for survival. This could be to survive through to the next minute, day, or week. So these are things like air, pretty vital stuff to carry on, water, food, shelter. Maslow wrote, It is quite true that man lives by bread alone when there is no bread. But what happens to man's desires when there is a plenty of bread? And when his belly is chronically filled, at once other and higher needs emerge. And these, rather than psychological hungers, dominate the organism. And when these in turn are satisfied, again new and still higher needs emerge and so on, up the pyramid. This is what we mean by saying that the basic human needs are organized into a hierarchy of relative prepotency. Once a level is satisfied, a person can think about the higher level. For example, once a person has their physical needs satisfied, they can start thinking about safety. Once they feel safe, they can then look for companionship to friends and loved ones. This is how the model goes. After this, a person might look for a purpose, looking for what they can accomplish. And then to the highest level, self-actualization achieving our full potential. As Maslow puts it, self-actuation is a person's desire to become everything one is capable of becoming, to find contentment in that, safety, joy, all at the same time. Well, actually, some 1,900 years before Maslow came up with this, this is actually at the heart of our passage today as well, written by Paul So if you closed your Bibles, you might find it helpful to reopen them again uh, on page 1180. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Paul tackles head-on at the start of our passage where we can find this joy, starting right there in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So where is the source of our happiness? Paul is really clear. Your happiness, my happiness, our joy can be found in God. Our self-actualization is to know God and to look for our joy in him. Recognizing, actually, that all of these levels of needs come from and are the blessing of God, our Heavenly Father, who cares for us explicitly and as only the best possible Father can. He knows our needs, whether physical, psychological, or spiritual. And this is actually the model uh, for the Lord's Prayer that we've just said. The disciples asked Jesus how they should pray. Jesus taught them to ask for their needs too. Give us today our daily bread. And only after rec- but, but only after recognizing who he is. What are the very two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. So today, on Father's Day, let's remember some of the words Jesus said about dads. He said, Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give them a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love being a dad. I think it's one of the the best things and fun things that I can be. I'm a dad to Rob and Beth, and even though they're both now in their 20s, I will never stop being their dad. And it's wonderful now to see they've both graduated, just graduated in the master's degree and, and first degree. And they've both, this month, will be starting, well, next month, in July, will be starting work after university. And it's lovely to see that next step in their independence. However, I will always care for them and about them. And I will always want, for all those levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to be satisfied for them. And that is actually what I think is missing from Maslow's hierarchy. With an atheist mindset, it just feels so clinical and almost animalistic. As we grab enough food at the bottom tier, we can then move on to safety. And then we can look for love and eventually start thinking about how we are valued and finally our self-actualization, being the people we can be. Thank you, Kim. A few years ago, I was fortunate, as some of you have also uh, been fortunate enough to go to the Ukraine. Uh, And so we go each summer and maybe in the winter um, to this rural area of the southwest of the Ukraine, an area where people are so desperate. And uh, sorry, not desperate. They are (laughs) they're so dependent on what they grow in their small holdings. It is a beautiful but troubled area of the world. And we work alongside the churches there. And if you have been, I'm sure you'll share this thought with me, that actually one of the things that really touches us is their dependence on God for everything. I heard one story of how a family was actually completely out of money. They didn't even have enough money to buy the seed to put in their gardens for the next season. So they went to church. They needed about £10 worth of money for that. They went to church the next day, it was a Sunday, and actually there was a stranger there that Sunday. And after the service, this stranger walked straight up to the family 
and said he'd been bothered the whole service. And he just felt that God was telling them, telling him to give them the equivalent of £10. The exact amount that they needed. In that instance, God was actually satisfying all of their needs. So let's think about those levels again. Food. They could now grow their food for what they needed to survive. Actually, this gave them a safety as well because they knew that there was going to be a good harvest from that seed. But then also love because they felt the love of that stranger and also, of course, the love of God in inspiring that stranger to give that perfect amount of money. Then also self-esteem. They could now grow their own food and maybe even have some left over to give to others. And finally, self-actualization. They knew that this is what God wanted for them. He wanted them to know that he is their father and they are his sons and daughters and he cares. He cares for them. He cares and loves them with all his heart. All of this is a simple act of the tears of need being satisfied. Looking at Maslow's hierarchy, rather than starting at the bottom, we as Christians often start at the top to become everything one is capable of becoming. But we slightly change this. Instead, saying that we want to become everything that God has designed for us, the men and women that he made us to be. Our self-actualization can be found in him, knowing him, being right with him, knowing that we are loved, being the men and women that he designed us to be. To be ourselves with him completely, Accepted by him. This is joy. Okay. There was an English writer called Julian Barnes. You may know him. He won the Man Booker Prize in 2011. Well, back in 2008, he wrote a book about his feeling concerning the inevitability of death. As an atheist, he started this book with these stark words. And this has really touched me. I don't believe in God but I miss him. Isn't that amazing? I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I've had people say to me that they wish they could believe in God, maybe at work. I think there is such a longing in us all, for there is more to life. There has to be. There has to be more purpose, more belonging, more connectedness. There is this whole There is something missing in us when we don't have this relationship with God. As Julian Brand says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Back in our passage in verse 1, Paul continues. And when do we find our joy in God? Well, after we've found the joy. Paul goes on to say that it's all about our safeguarding. We are safe in him So all the rest of our hierarchy is possible. Fundamentally, this is also knowing that God is the one who satisfies our need as only he knows how. Even beyond this life, even when some of the fundamentals of life are no longer possible, when our bodies fail, God is still right there and he takes us home where all our needs will be satisfied in a way we can't even imagine yet. So, Who are we relying on? God or ourselves? Are we trying to grab onto what we can in life? Or are we resting in God, 
looking for our joy in him, in peace. Paul clearly says, look for it in God. This is so important that Paul makes no apologies for repeating multiple times in his letter to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, he says this 12 times throughout his letter. By implication, as well as telling the Philippines this, he's also saying this message to us. Rejoice in the Lord. Jesus said that he came that we may have life and have it to the fullest. This is deep, true, genuine joy. Joy that is not dependent on circumstance. Joy that underlines all of that Maslow's hierarchy. Joy that fills the gap when some of those things are not there. So, let's read on in our passage. We've done verse 1. Don't worry, we've spent a bit longer on verse 1 than the rest of the verses. So, let's read on. If we move on to verse 2, actually suddenly there looks like a jarring. There's a very different track. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, one of the things I think we should remember is that this is a letter. This is a letter from Paul to those people in Philippi that he knew so well. And most likely, the way he would have written it is he would have been walking up and down, dictating that to a scribe. So you can imagine him looking out the window and this poor scribe trying to keep up with Paul's passion uh, for his friends back in Philippi. So what is this about? Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the faith. Well, actually, within the church, there were two types of Christians. There were, those, there were two types from different types of backgrounds. Those that had grown up in a Jewish family and those that hadn't. And those that hadn't would have probably been Romans or Greeks in Philippi. Now, Paul was earnestly trying to preach a new message. Jesus' message of freedom, of peace, and a way of knowing God and being forgiven by him through everything Jesus did not everything we do. And this is why Christianity was so revolutionary, making it something that, that could be earned rather than a free gift was a, a distortion of that gospel. So many in the Jewish faith had, although it was not God's intent, made following God all about the rules rather than the heart of following God. We see this again and again with the Pharisees in the Gospels. These Jews were agreeing that the way to happiness was through knowing God, but they had distorted the very gospel. And now this wonderful church in Philippi that Paul had seen so well and had been able to explain this way, this new way, was now being dragged into this old way of thinking. Now this is an issue that the early church had struggled with. At the very beginning of the church in the Acts of the Apostles, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, the vast majority of new Christians were, of course, Jewish. And as well as praying and meeting in homes, they would also have met in the synagogues. We're told about that in the Acts of the Apostles. However, as time went on, more and more new believers were Gentiles, people without Jewish background. So they wouldn't have followed those Jewish practices, such as having their baby boys circumcised. In Acts 15, we are told some 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion that the church met in Jerusalem to discuss this very issue. Paul was there alongside the disciples, and we are told there was much debate, after which all agreed 
that whether uncircumcised Gentile or circumcised Jew, both were saved not through outward signs, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And a letter was sent out from that council to all the church, all the Christian communities, that circumcision was no longer needed uh, by converted Gentiles. But here we are in our passage just a few years later, when some of the Jewish members of the church in Philippi were trying to change this decision. So Paul is quite angry, to say the least, calling them dogs. Dogs at that time were not our house dogs, our lovely uh, pets. Both for Jew and Greek, dogs would have been looked down upon. These would have been stray dogs that would have been eating off the trash, eating off uh, rubbish dumps. So this is a real insult. Secondly, he called them these men evil. He sees that if Christianity loses its message of salvation, whereby salvation comes solely from the faith in Jesus and not from what we do, then all will be lost. And lastly, in a rather graphical way, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. This is because if circumcision was just an outward sign and didn't represent much more, namely a change of heart too, then the inward, uh, the inward is so much more important than the outward. So if it's just an outward sign, then, there's nothing, then it is nothing more than mutilation. And I think this may be a challenge to us also. What do we do as an outward sign and we don't feel in our heart what we're doing? Maybe we just go through the motions. And so that's a challenge to us to stand up and think, Lord, where am I in this? Am I just going through the motions? So Paul then goes on to refute those who look to rules to be found right in God. He says basically, if anyone stood any chance of being saved by being good, it would have been him. So going on in verse uh, 7, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, falseness. So he says that if anyone stands any chance, he would. But he refutes it. He does not. No one stands a chance of saving themselves. God seeks nothing more than perfection. He is holy and cannot accept anything but holiness. Back in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, hallowed be your name. God is holy and we are not. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Going on to say in chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. So we have no chance. Except God, except Paul adds in the very same verse from Romans chapter 6, but And what a wonderful, glorious but. The gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So if you've come to church this morning and cannot say that Jesus is your Lord, then this is the most wonderful news to you. This does not mean you need to be totally sorted to know God. God, our Heavenly Father, knows you intimately and wants to know you and bring you joy and contentment at being right with him. Knowing that God, through his son's death 
And the gift of the Holy Spirit can change everything, giving purpose and real joy. If you want to know more, do make sure that you see somebody at the end of the service, either in our prayer corner or Richard or myself. But if you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is, of course, every day still wonderful news to us. Paul, in verse 7 and 8 of our passage, still considers everything he has, he had before knowing Jesus, to be absolute rubbish. So if you're anything like me in our comfortable lives, I sometimes forget that God is the one behind all of my blessings. What the Ukrainian family taught me earlier on was that freedom, we have an amazing freedom and bliss of knowing that God is there for all of life's needs, from the smallest to the largest. We are so blessed in the West with the abundance of food and opportunity that it is so good that we are reminded to thank God even for our daily bread. So I'm going to finish with Paul's words at the very end of our passage. There is such a freedom in knowing that we are saved not by having a righteousness of our own, but coming, that is coming from the law, but that which is through the faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Amen.